I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the Sirens. Today we are talking about the movie Casablanca, which is a 1942 American movie, of course, directed by Michael Curtiz, based on an unproduced stage play by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison called Everybody Comes to Rick's. It stars Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, and Paul Henreid, and it also uh, features Claude Rains, Conrad Veidt, uh, Sydney Greenstreet, Peter Laurie, and Dooley Wilson. So it's a big cast with some people we've seen before on the uh, on the podcast. There are multiple ways that you could summarize the movie Casablanca. I found a horrible, awful summary on Wikipedia that I thought might be an appropriate way to start off the conversation because it was, <laughs> it's not even technically correct. But <laughs> was it was it the Netflix um, synopsis people who wrote it? Because those are always terrible. Um, well, it, it is. Here's the here's where how it goes. Rick Blaine, hum, played by Humphrey Bogart who owns a nightclub in Casablanca, discovers his old flame Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, is in town with her husband, Victor Laszlo, who's played by Paul Henreid. Laszlo is a famed rebel, and with Germans on his tail, Ilsa knows Rick can help them get out of the country. That's it. That's the summary. That's it? Okay, first of all, that's not even true. None of it is accurate. <laughs> I mean, like, yes, he owns a nightclub, but it's, like, not even... This is terrible. <laughs> um, I mean, the only parts that, yeah, he owns a nightclub and their names are correct. <laughs> he, and like, saying that he's a famed rebel is, he's the leader of the resistance. So. Yeah, why not just say that? And it's not the Germans who are on his tail, it's the Nazis who are on his tail. So. Yes. Just to clarify. This, whoever wrote this synopsis um, needs to examine their subconscious yeah. <laughs> the way they chose the language. <laughs> um, do you have any trivia about this movie? This, because this is like such a famous and lauded and beloved film, there's a lot of trivia available. I, th- I thought it was interesting because this movie came out during the war, mm-hmm. so there's a lot just about, you know, who the actors were, how they actually felt about the scenes, because, you know, when this came out, they really didn't know how the war was going to mm-hmm. go. Yeah, because it, um, so it was released in 1942. When they sing the French national anthem over the German song, um, a lot of the extras were actually crying in that scene, because a large number of them were actual refugees mm-hmm. from... Um, Nazi-occupied countries and were actually brought to tears just by, like, that moment. And interestingly, a lot of the actors who played the Nazis were, in fact, German Jews who had escaped from Nazi Germany. Oh. There's another little tidbit that um, Conrad Veidt, mm-hmm. who played Major Strausser, mm-hmm. actually, he was, uh, he performed in Germany and he was well known for hating the Nazis and opposing the Nazis. He was married to a Jewish woman. He worked with uh, Jewish people in the theater community. And so he had to flee Germany mm-hmm. um, when he found out that there was like a death warrant out for him. Uh-huh. And he actually made it so that he chose to play mm-hmm. Nazi villains on purpose because mm-hmm. he thought it would help the war effort, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. You seem like you know a lot of this already. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, the this I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but supposedly the chess game in the movie was a real game that Humphrey Bogart was playing by mail with a friend of his. Oh. 
during the course of filming. You know how people do that? They'll, like, send each other moves? Yeah. Not anything I'm ever going to be interested in. <laughs> yeah, and it, I think thinking about that just made me realize how little attention span we have now. Can you imagine, like, waiting for a letter to go through the mail with one move? No. And then responding to that move and then sending another letter. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a... I kind of like the idea of that. That's sort of like the first, like, collaborative game, I guess, maybe. Did you, So, I don't know if you know this, but Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman was a tall lady, mm-hmm. and Humphrey Bogart had to wear platform <laughs> shoes to play alongside her, and you can actually see, if you compare, like, different scenes in the film, that... The height disparity is inconsistent. Oh, that's funny. What he's wearing. Um, um that's because she was five nine and a half. Which I think is a lovely height. Yeah. And appropriate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is so horrifying. Hell, I had to include it. In the early two thousands, Madonna wanted to remake Casablanca. No. With her playing no. Elsa and and Ashton Kutcher playing Rick. No. Um, That's absurd. And <laughs> she pitched the idea to to every studio, but was unanimously rejected. Good. Yeah, and I, I just I can't. First of all, remaking Casablanca terrible idea. Doesn't mean that producers wouldn't do it because they're doing all kinds of terrible things. But but and then casting herself and Ashton Kutcher, like I could not even get past that. Well, and I think that part of why this movie resonates so much is that it was, it's set during the early part of the war, and it's made during the early part of the war. Like, that, people watching it were like, could so identify with that ex- experience, which you, like, couldn't do in yeah. the 90s. And this last piece, Humphrey Bogart's wife, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Mayo Method, mm-hmm. um, conti- she was, like, super jealous and suspicious that he was having an affair with Ingrid Bergman. Yeah, so... And she was like... Oh, go ahead. Oh, so they weren't allowed to speak on, on set, right? Is that... Uh, that's... Well, that's not what I was gonna say, but, um... From what I found, it, it said that they, like, rarely mm-hmm. talked in between. I didn't... Is that why? Because she forbid him from talking to her? Yes. <laughs> I, what I read, Ingrid Bergman didn't realize that that was why... Like, she thought that... He, that Humphrey Bogart just hated her. And it was only afterwards that she realized that it was because his wife was jealous. <laughs> well, they had such incredible chemistry in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the done thing to have affairs with your co-stars. <laughs> <laughs> Previously on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, so I, I read that the only time that they ever really hung out was when they had lunch with Geraldine Fitzgerald and all they talked about at the lunch was how much they hated the movie and how they wished they could get out of their contracts. <laughs> and that that was it. That was the whole conversation. But partly why they hated it, I think. And I don't know if you found this in your um, when you were looking at stuff, but, but it was based on the stage play, but they rewrote huge chunks of it. The brothers who were the um, screenwriters were only like a day or two ahead of what was shooting. And so they didn't know, the actors didn't know how the movie was going to end until, like, the day that they were shooting the ending. Which, like, seems like it would be hard. (laughs) Yeah, also, how could you memorize your lines? Yeah, it's, like, not the best working conditions. That's interesting. That's all that I have for trivia. Was there anything you wanted to add? Because I know you know this movie well. (laughs) I think that's all I would add. 
I'm just about the the script writing process. And I think it, they ended up, I might be wrong about this, but they, you know, there was this big conference among world leaders in Casablanca, I think at the end of 1942. It was right before the movie was supposed to be released. And that conference was a, uh, you know, a milestone in the war, you know, and, and it was a you know thing that was in the news. And so it just so happened that the movie then was released Soon after that, I think they, like, moved the release date up a little bit to, like, coincide with that conference, you know, to sort of capitalize on the fact that this, like, major, you know, ally conference was was happening. That was smart. Yeah. <laughs> well, who did you bio for this hill? Um, so I bioed Claude Rains, who plays Captain Renault. And I didn't actually know very much about him, so I learned some things as I was looking him up. So he was born William Claude Rains in November 1889 in London. His father was a stage actor, and his mother took in boarders in order to support the family, which included a total of 12 children, of which all but three died of malnutrition when they were still infants, so there weren't a lot of, like, children who survived into childhood. Yikes. Yeah, awful. And so Claude Rains left school when he was in second grade to sell papers so that he could, um, you know, contribute to the family income and he sang in a choir, um, which, you know, provided some money as well. Um, he, because his dad was an actor, he spent a lot of time in theaters and was surrounded by that, like, theater life. He made his stage debut at the age of 10 in a play called Sweet Nell of Old Drury, like, that just, like, involved running around on stage as a child. So it was, like, not <laughs> not that impressive. You know, he worked behind the scenes, you know, starting as a callboy and then moving up through the ranks to become a stage manager and a, um, an understudy for various parts and then moving on to smaller parts. So he really, you know, worked his way up. He went to the United States in 1913, you know, because he was interested in the opportunities that were, that might be there in the New York theaters, but the war, um, sent him back to England where he served in the, um, the London Scottish Regiment with uh, several actors, actually, Basil Rathbone and, um, Ronald Coleman. And then he, he was involved in a gas attack that actually left him permanently, uh, mostly blind in one of his eyes. Um, after the war, he went to, um, taken, uh, care of by a man named Sir Herbert Beerbaum Tree, who was the founder of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. This guy was basically like, you have a thick Cockney accent and you have a speech impediment, so, like, we gotta do something about those things. Um, so that you can actually, like, you know, succeed. So the accent that uh, Claude Rains has is a made-up accent that is that is his alone, which is sort of interesting. It's sort of a mix of American, English, and, and slightly Cockney, which was Cockney was the accent that he had. It's the Claude Rains accent. Um, <laughs> and so once he, like, sort of transformed his voice, he um, started act- appearing a lot in the London theater. Strangely, in a movie, or excuse me, in a play about Ulysses S. Grant, and then in another play about Abraham Lincoln. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Just sticking with that one historical period. That's right. Kept working in the theater and then started working in movies sort of relatively late in 1932. He appeared in The Invisible Man in 1933. There was sort of a, like, apocryphal story about how, you know, he was doing a screen test for another movie, and uh, the you know, casting agents in the next room overheard him and his voice. He signed a contract with Warner Brothers, but there was a lot of, um, 
leeway for him to work with other studios. So he worked with Columbia Studios to play a senator in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We sort of went back and forth to his home studio, Warner Brothers, um, to play Casablanca. And then he went over to Universal to play the title character in Phantom of the Opera. He had exactly one singing and dancing role, and that was in 1957 um, when he was in the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Uh, it's kind of odd. I can't imagine him singing and dancing. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. But he, you know, he was really active in the 1950s and 60s as a character actor. He appeared in film and on television and was in a lot of, like, sweeping shows like Lawrence of Arabia, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and Rawhide. And then he did a lot of narration for, like, audio recordings where he narrated some Bible stories, recorded some poems, and used that unique voice for good. Um, He'd become a naturalized citizen of the United States in 1939. He married six times, had one child, um, and eventually bought a farm outside of West Bradford Township in Pennsylvania. And, which is, like, near Coatesville, I guess. And he, he later said that it was one of the great prides of his life that he had this farm. Um, which... That's, like, that's not that far from Philly. I know. (laughs) It's like, oh, all roads lead back to Philly. (laughs) When he, after he died, um, in 1967 from an abdominal hemorrhage, his daughter said that, like most actors, he died waiting for his agent to call. Oh, she's kind of sad. (laughs) (laughs) But he was buried, uh, in New Hampshire. Not sure exactly why. And he designed his own tombstone. So he lived... You know, a good... He lived to be 77. We've we've seen worse. Um, I do like his accent. Yeah. And he's just so good in that role. Yeah. That's, yes. It's it's just brilliant. Yeah. He's in now Voyager. And he's been in... A, he was in other movies. He was in Notorious, um, which we haven't talked about, with um, Ingrid Bergman. And my dad loves him as an actor, so I had to bio him. Your dad seems to like the character actors. Yes. That is true. My dad likes a good character actor. Hi, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> this movie has a lot of great mm-hmm. ones in it. Yeah. Who did you um, bio? I, I bioed Peter Lorre mm-hmm. because I really like him. Um, first saw him in the movie M, the German movie. Uh-huh. It's like a, it's a Fritz Lang film. And he's so good in that, that like ever since then, I, I just can't, I can't look away <laughs> at anything else that he's in. So he was born... Laszlo Lowenstein on June 26, 1904 in Hungary. So I thought that was interesting that his actual name was Laszlo and then there's Victor Laszlo in this movie. He began his stage career in Vienna at age 17 and then moved to Germany where he worked first on the stage, uh, including with playwright Bertolt Brecht. Uh-huh. And then in film in Berlin in the late 20s and early 1930s. That was the time when Berlin was this huge film hub as well and really was competing with Hollywood and could have gone either way. But then Nazis and everyone who was good left and the only people who stayed who were good made propaganda films and were ruined. So anyway, that's an aside about German film. <laughs> And he, so he really catapulted to fame while he was in Germany with the film M uh-huh. in 1931, in which he portrayed a serial killer who preys on little girls. Good. Mm-hmm. And a light, yeah. a light-hearted uh, comedy. But and I still, I recommend everyone see that movie. It's not as dark as you would think. <laughs> I don't think it could possibly be. Okay. <laughs> 
Laurie was Jewish and he left Germany when Hitler came to power um, and he was living in London when he made his first English language film, Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1934. And he eventually settled in Hollywood and became a featured player in a lot of crime and mystery films. In his initial American films, Mad Love and Crime and Punishment both in 1935. He continued to play murderers, but he was then cast as Mr. Moto, the Japanese detective in a B-picture series. Oh, right. Which... I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. It's but fine. he really was typecast for most of his career as, like, a criminal or, you know, a mentally ill person or some sort of villain because of that, like, first breakout role. Mm -hmm. uh, in... From 1941 to 46, he mainly worked for Warner Brothers, and his first film there was The Maltese Falcon in 41, which was the first of a series where he like appeared with Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet, who played Ferrari in Casablanca. Mm -hmm. So after The Maltese Falcon came Casablanca in 1942, and then he also was in Frank Capra's Arc Snake and Old Lace in 1944, which we should probably do at some point, because Cary Grant... Um, and, yes. <laughs> uh, he was in Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1954. Uh, he was the first actor to play a James Bond villain in a TV version of Casino Royale in 1954. Oh. And some of his last roles were in horror films directed by Roger Corman. He was married three times and had one daughter named Catherine. And he suffered for, for years from chronic gallbladder disease oh. and his doctors prescribed morphine for it because oh. that's what they were doing at the time and then he became addicted to morphine so for a lot of his life he was just going back and forth between chronic pain and addiction um, to ease the pain and that doesn't seem like it ever really resolved and he died on March 23rd 1964 from a stroke so and I would recommend if people are interested in learning more about him there's a great Stuff You Missed in History Class episode about his life. Ooh. Yes. Shout out to Stuff You Missed in History Class. An excellent podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so should we get into it with the film? Okay, so we have both seen this movie, right? Before this was, there was no, yes. no spoilers. We were both... We've both seen it. I'm curious about your history with it, because I... You know, I've seen it a couple times, but I feel like you've seen it a lot. <laughs> um, my history with this movie is that I showed a clip of it. I can't remember which clip of it. As part of my, my undergrad capstone presentation as a history student in college. Because... Whoa. Yeah. Because I, in college and then in grad school, I was interested in non-French women who participated in the French Resistance. The French Resistance, like, myth was that, you know, people participated in, you know, resistance as a, as a patriotic act, as a nationalist act, um, you know, as a way to say, like, we love France, we're not going to let people, you know, mess with France, but, like, really it was larger than that. Well, you know, a lot of people have made this argument that, like, you know, the, the communists who were taking part in the resistance were, like, you know, interested in the communist ideal. And Ilsa Lund sort of idealizes that in a way because she's, she's Scandinavian and she's married to a Czechoslovakian and, you know, they're doing resistance work with throughout Europe for the for a general cause rather than for, like, any kind of, like, patriotic. And I think, you know, like, it would be interesting to see Casablanca from, like, actually from her point of view of, like, what she was actually doing. Because, like, she, like, it's obviously an act of resistance to, like, hold the secrets of the leader of resistance movement but 
you know, she was probably, like, writing letters, you know, making food, attending meetings, doing stuff, and that's, you know, that we don't know about that in this movie. Anyway. Yeah, that's what I was actually curious about, because she talks about their work, Mm -hmm. as in both of them, and I wanted to know more about Mm -hmm. what her role was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, maybe we should write the backstory. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Please let us. <laughs> um, well, I had obviously seen this movie a couple times, like, growing up. Mm-hmm. I have a very vivid memory from when I was studying in Scotland, like, going over to my friend's flat. Like, there was a group of guy friends, and we would, like, have movie nights, and they chose Casablanca. And I went over there, and they literally knew all the lines. Mm-hmm. Like, they knew every line to the movie. And these were, like, 19-year-old boys. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like... And, and at that moment, I was like, ugh. I, I've never been more attracted to every person in this room, and it's all just because of Casablanca. <laughs> um, um, well, you won't be surprised to know that there are part, portions of this movie that I have memorized because I listened to them over and over again. But it was not my fault. There is a CD. There was a CD. I, I still have it, I think. That was, like, scenes. It was some of, like, Dooley Wilson, like, songs. You know, him performing. Um, some movies that were actually in the movie and some that were just outtakes. But then, like, whole scenes of dialogue. And I, of course, listen to them over and over again. Oh, my gosh. So you have, like, opened my mind to this world where people listen to the recorded dialogue of movies separately from the movie. I didn't even know that was a thing until you told me about it. I think I only thought about it as a thing because I think Ingrid Bergman did it. She did, a like, a similar thing where she, like... And, and, well, Ingrid Bergman did it as an adult to learn English. I mean, she, like, went to the same movies over and over again to, like, figure out what they were saying. I think Greta Garbo. That is a good way to, like, learning uh, a second language. I do think that's helpful. And it's less, like, it's less stressful. You know, actually, even just in a dark theater, you could be like, well, I can kind of figure out what's going on as opposed to talking to someone, which can be very stressful. Mm -hmm. Well, so I'm assuming you liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler, I don't think it passes the Bechdel test. I do like this movie, and I think, you know, I posted on Twitter this morning from the Screen Sirens account, you know, a poll about how relevant people thought this movie was, and because, you know, I was watching this movie from this time, from the lens of, like, the conversations that we're having now about you know, refugees and immigrants and resistance, you know, and some, and how we deal with people who have papers and who don't have papers, you know, and what it means to be quote unquote usual suspects. Like that's just straight up racial profiling right there. Um, and it's sort of, for me, it was interesting to watch it with the present day stuff. And some of these things haven't changed. Yeah. That, that was the thing that really struck me too. Like it opens with a newsreel. Mm hmm about all the refugees trying to get to America and it seems and the and the absolute desperation of the people mm-hmm. in the movie yeah. really seems to mirror what's going on now at our borders. Mm-hmm. So it I thought it seemed it seems especially relevant now. Yeah. And also that like the culture of fear and distrust that they establish early in the movie with somebody murdered someone do you have your papers like just shooting people in the street Mm -hmm. yeah in the back as they're running away like they don't know who he is yeah and then like the other like the other side of it that like when 
Major Strasser comes in, it comes to Casablanca and he goes to Rick's to like watch the arrest of Peter Laurie's character, Ugarte. Renault goes to Carl, the Major D, and is like, oh, make sure he has the best table. And Carl is like, I already gave him the best table, knowing that he's German and he would just take it anyway. And it was just like <laughs> such a zinger of a line. He knows this guy has a lot of power. <laughs> oh, that professor is such a good character. I know. So good. I will say there's one difference with watching this movie this time, which was that we watched Now Voyager in between the times. And I would say that, like, in the past, when I saw this movie, and I was much younger, but I was always like, yeah, Team Rick. And, like, this time watching it, I was like, I am 100% Team Victor (laughs) in this. 100%. I already know from Now Voyager he can light a cigarette in a very sexy way. (laughs) And also, he's the leader of the resistance. He stands up for what's right, even in very foolhardy situations where he could... Like, the thing with him being like... Play the anthem and them all doing it. I was like, listen, dude, they already want to kill you. And like, right. like publicly displaying. But also, I love you for it. So I don't know if... How did you feel about, like, Rick versus Victor? I was thinking about Rick's cafe this time. Just in how it is sort of a... Like, there's so many... He sort of uses it as a tool of resistance to, like, even though he's not actually, like, going to the meetings or, like, actively undermining, you know, the the bad forces but he's you know employing a bunch of refugees he's you know saying to them when they're going to the meetings don't tell me where you're going i don't want to know i like it's better if i don't know he's using the fact that he like has the the um, casino tables rigging them in the favor of some people so that like that one young couple you know they win a lot and he's like take you know here's what you do and you now you need to leave and you don't come back you know and that he's you know saying to some people you know you're not welcome here and you're lucky that your money is even accepted at the bar and those people who aren't welcome are the german officers you know he's even when he's like gonna go sell the cafe because he's like ostensibly going to america well Elsa, he like tells the guy who runs the competing cafe, like, oh, yeah, you know, Sam, the piano player, stays with the cafe and he gets 50% of the profits or whatever, and the blue parrot guy is like, that's not true, but, like, (laughs) okay. Mm -hmm. It's, like, two different, like, ways of resisting. Victor, like, out leading and, like, doing, like, guerrilla stuff and, you know, organizing and, you know, leading these meetings or whatever, and then there's Rick who's, like, in everyday ways sort of, like, undermining the power and the bad people. That's true. I mean, if you really look at it cumulatively, Rick was doing a lot of good. I just like that Ilsa keeps falling in love. Like, Ilsa's type is people who participate in resistance. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, I was curious. I mean, once again, I'm like wanting to know more about her backstory. Mm -hmm. But when she says that she was very young Mm -hmm. and she met Victor and he had been described as, like, a hero by her family. Mm -hmm. Like, what was the relationship there? And, like, how young was she also? Yeah, to me that, like, said, you know, her family was involved in resistance because her family knew about, you know, Victor Laszlo, which is kind of an interesting thing that she's Scandinavian. Maybe she's not. No, her name is Ilsa Lund. She's she's definitely Scandinavian. Well, at some point they say sh- that she was from Oslo. Or oh, that's right. Oslo. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think Rick was right that if she had gone with Rick, that at some point she would have regretted it? It's such a big question, Emily. I know. But these are these are the things we dive into yeah. on the Screen Cyrus <laughs> podcast. 
<laughs> I, I mean, there's some part of me that is like, like appreciates his like heroism, but on the other hand, I'm like, why are you making all these decisions for her? Like, let her have some like decision making power. Yeah, I don't know. Like in the Paris scenes, I loved the acting in the Paris scenes, especially towards the end, because you can really you can see that she that Ilsa is like wrestling internally with like. She knows that she has to leave Rick and that, like, she only, like, opened her heart up to Rick because she thought her husband was dead. And now that her husband is alive, she's like, well, now there's, what have, what have I done? You know, and so she goes back to her husband because he's sick and she needs to take care of him. But I think because she really does genuinely care about him and it just, like, is this, like, horrible thing about war that, like, you know, she got kind of caught in the middle of it. I think she belongs with Victor. Yeah, I kind of do, too, because my, my cynical take on the... <laughs> The Elsa-Rick romance mm-hmm. was that it was like, you know, a brightly burning flame, mm-hmm. but not. Because, I mean, they even say, like, we don't we didn't tell each other anything about ourselves. Right. So basically it was just, like, chemistry and them having fun together. Yeah. That's not something that's sustainable for a long term. Yeah. It's a rebound. Yeah. That's the sense I got. And, like, it could be that, you know, she had more passion for Rick or was, like, more attracted to him or something. Um, Because she does say at one point, like, I thought that I loved Victor, but I didn't really know what love was, you know, until she met Rick. Mm -hmm. That was really sad seeing, like, I feel like I very rarely see Humphrey Bogart playing, like, happy. I know. I know. (laughs) And, like, seeing him in those happy Paris scenes, I was like, I I don't even know what this is. Like, I know. You're smiling. It was grotesque. Yeah. um, I was like, please go back to being, like, drunk and mean. (laughs) Please be the Bogart we know and love. Uh, I was going to ask about the setting of the cafe and what you thought of it. Because it almost seemed like it was another character. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I was like, I want to go there. I mean, it was such. A, it seemed like such a big, sprawling place where there was a lot going on. Where, like, Rick totally knew what was happening. You know, that there was, like, a lot of black market work going on. And he was letting it happen. And it seemed like there were some discreet places. But also, like, places where people could, like do the things they needed to do. Which I wonder if that was, like, the only place where people could do that. I think they kind of referred to it as, like, it had a reputation as being a place where people could do that. But um, I loved it as a character. Me too. It did seem like it was huge. And, like, you had, like, a whatever, like, a 16-piece orchestra. Mm -hmm. And, like, you had Sam. And there was the bar. and It seemed like a place where there was actual excitement and people were mixing from all different like ethnic backgrounds and different classes in ways that Mm -hmm. probably weren't typical Mm -hmm. prior to the war. I did think it was kind of funny how when there would be disturbances like when they were trying to get um, Peter Lorre's character like people were just like shooting in the cafe and then Rick would just be like oh I'm sorry for that disturbance like go back to your (laughs) cocktails or whatever and everyone would just be like okay I'd be like if people were just like opening fire I would not stay there I mean I it's it is kind of like you know the world that we live in now where there's like all these public shootings and you know nothing changes it's so scary well I mean would you literally sit at the same table at the cafe like immediately after like a bullet went whizzing past you though maybe if you didn't want to like draw attention to yourself I don't know yeah I guess that's true, because it's just like, hey, this is the new normal. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just going to go back to how much I like Victor. (laughs) Okay. You know what else I liked about Victor? (laughs) That when he finds out 
that his wife you know, unknowingly cheated on him and, like, he doesn't even... He completely gives her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Says, you don't have to tell me anything. Um, Even when he talks to Rick, he's like, I love her. Like, you know, I do... Like, he would sacrifice himself for her even after all of that. And I was just like, this is, like, this man knows how to do a relationship. Yeah. Okay? Totally. Hashtag relationship goals. (laughs) You know that if that situation were reversed, and it was Rick who had been in the, who she thought was dead, and she cheated on with Victor, Rick was not going to take it like that. No, Rick would be like throwing like glasses against the wall and like screaming at her and all of that stuff. Well, I mean, that's basically he thought that like he that 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 that's what had happened. He was like, because his line is, "Who did you leave me? Who was it you left me for? Was it Victor, or were there other people in between?" Like, he totally believes that, like, she's, like, capable... Oh, his drunk virgin totally believes that she's, like, playing all the men. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, he... I didn't like the way he acted, like, angry and bitter and lashing out at her. Yeah. There were a couple lines that I still laughed out loud at watching it this time. It's a funny movie. It's very dry and witty, and the writing is really good. Louis says... I am shocked, shocked to find there's gambling <laughs> going on in here. And then they say, you're winning, sir. Yeah, oh my god. Like, classic, classic. I mean, I liked some lines that were less... I mean, I liked... I'd give him the best because he's German and he would take it anyway. I guess what I loved most about this movie is knowing that this movie was made by the Americans in 1942. And that, like, there are so many anti Like, potentially anti-Nazi things. Like, like that, you know, he's German and he's gonna take it anyway. And that, like, Strasser is threatening Laszlo and saying, like, we'll kill you, and, you know, we're gonna kill the movement, and Victor Lazlo is like, oh no, like, if you kill me, the movement will just keep going. You can't kill the movement, and he says even Nazis can't kill that fast, and what kills me is that it was 1942. It was released in 1942. We know that, like, Americans knew what was happening, but this is, like, such an artifact of, like, Americans knew what what, were ha- what was happening in Europe, and they didn't do anything to stop the Nazis. Oh, yeah, I mean, they talk about the concentration camps. Yes, and they can't talk about the concentration camps. Yeah, you're right. And I, I, I did include this in the trivia, but I did read that Warner Brothers was uh, the first Hollywood studio to be openly anti-Nazi and do a lot of films like this and also they stopped distributing their films in Nazi occupied territories. Yeah. This film was shown, you know, like all over the world. That's the thing. It feels to me like this movie should have come out like after the war because it was so prescient. And, mm-hmm. But instead, I mean, yeah, it's, maybe that's why it holds up so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in Victor, there's one line that Victor says, he says, if we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die, which I was just like, I need that like above my desk or something, you know? (laughs) I also loved, going back to Elsa and her like agency where she's like, whether or not she wants to stay with, she wants to stay with Victor or stay with Rick when she goes to um, see him to ask him for the letters of transit. Because she realizes she's the only, she's like, she's the one who can get them from him. She, she's, like, frustrated because he won't give them to her. And she, like, what she says is, one woman hurt you. And you're taking your revenge on the entire world. Like, how dare you put your personal feelings ahead of the fact that Victor Laszlo is the leader of this movement. You know, so she's, like, like seeing the bigger picture. I love that. Yeah, I thought that was a really good line too that she had because he was being very misogynistic in that moment Mm -hmm. and I really liked the way she put him in his place Mm -hmm. 
Um, I had forgotten that she draws a gun on him until this rewatching. I love, I wrote in my note that she threatens the man she loves for the good of the cause. Badass. Yeah. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Do we want to do any more broad stuff or could we get into costumes? Because I have a lot of notes on that. Let's get into the costumes. Um, mostly my notes are just that every, all the outfits are amazing. Uh-huh. I love, well, first of all, I like how a lot of the clothes that Ingrid Bergman wears are kind of like simple. Mm-hmm. Like she always looks very classic. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying, it might have been in the last episode or one before, but that she refused to do the tiny eyebrows like oh, yeah. fashion at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Her clothes also just were like very elegant and timeless. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, which I it's, appreciate. It's interesting to think about like the clothes, like where did she get these dresses that she's like, where did they get these clothes if they're running, you know, running from the Nazis? Like, she- Yeah, that's what I wondered too. Like, cause I think in the, the first time we see her, she's in like, a plain white blouse and, like, black skirt or, you know, like, a long skirt. And, like, I could see it being, like, oh, this is the only outfit I have. Yeah. But then like, she has, like, kind of four other outfits. <laughs> yeah. That she's got, like, the suit and, yeah, she's got, oh, my gosh, at the end when Ilsa and Victor are wearing their fedoras yep. and, like, dressed to travel. Uh, and then, like, Rick comes out in his trench coat and fedora. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Were you, uh... I could not. Were you having a fedora overload in the best way? Ah, yes, I was. And I do love trench coats, so, like, that was fabulous. Um, I loved the Paris scene where she's, like, wearing a beret and a scarf. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. She also had, like, a really wonderful wide-brimmed hat in another scene. Oh, her market Um, hat that she wears? Yes. Because, of course, she would have one of those if she's running from the I mean, that's what happens. You go from, like, underground to camp to Fabulous Wardrobe to Casablanca. Sure. Of course. (laughs) I also liked Rick's club outfit with the white jacket like tuxedo look mm-hmm. so good um very classy hard to pull off but he pulls it off yeah i have a note here that just says victor is so tall and hot exclamation <laughs> i want to point out that ingrid bergman did not have to feel too tall when she was in the scenes with him <laughs> that's uh, um, i'm not gonna argue so <laughs> Um, Oh, I also wrote, this is not fashion, but someone, there's a quote, or someone said this to me once, that cynics are failed idealists. Hmm. I feel like that, that's what, that's what Rick Rick reminded me of. Yeah, exactly. Like he's acts so cynical, but really he is idealistic. Yeah. Um, Until then he becomes an idealist again. Mm -hmm. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. So you said earlier that you don't think that it passes the Bechdel test. That's right. I don't think it does. Yeah, I don't. There are female characters, like other female characters, who are somewhat developed in the story, but they don't talk to each other. Right. There's Yvonne, who's the like cafe patron, who's French, who you know is had some kind of affair with Rick, and then go, starts hanging out with the German officers, and the other French characters are like, "What's wrong with you?" And there's some like various like miscellaneous like women characters who are refugees. There's that the young woman. the couple. 
Yeah, the refugee woman, like the young married woman who Rick helps. Mm -hmm. And then, you know what I noticed too? The the Spanish singer Uh who performs at the club. She was doing a lot of great like background acting. Mm -hmm. Like when the Nazis, anytime like the Nazis came in, she would keep her like stage smile on. Uh But her face would kind of like freeze up. Like you could tell that she hated them, but she was still performing. And I really liked that. That performer is someone. I liked her. I think that's another reason this movie is so good, is that all of the smaller roles are played by really good actors. Mm -hmm. She was the stepmother of Edward Gorey. That's who she is. Oh. Okay. That's why I had recently heard of her. Okay. (laughs) Of course. I feel like we could have picked, like, almost anyone to buy Mm -hmm. in this movie. Even some of the, like, much smaller roles. But yeah, it's definitely not... I mean, it's not just about romance. Like, the women actually are dealing with real issues. They're Mm -hmm. pretty Mm -hmm. much all refugees. Yeah, I guess you're Um, right in that way. They're just not talking to other women. Yeah, they're just not talking to other women. So it does not pass. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. But what about social justice? I'm sort of curious to know if anyone has written about Casablanca from, like, like through a lens of social justice, because I think it is... We, I mean, we've talked about so many themes of, like, refugees and resistance and, you know, the, like, the agency that people have to, like, make their own decisions about life and the, like, racial profiling, which are all, you know, related to social justice, right? Yeah, I thought... This was one of the most social justice-focused movies we've watched. Because it's just very explicitly about oppressive regimes and refugees Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. racial and ethnic things going on in the movie. So, yeah. Yeah. I I like it a lot. (laughs) For all the reasons that probably everyone else does. That's right. It's like the second best movie on the AFI's list, right? And is the best Citizen Kane? Yes. Okay. Which for a long time I I had said, I'm not going to watch Citizen Kane. I don't believe that it could possibly be better than Casablanca. It was young. And is that still true? I mean, I watched Citizen Kane, but I only saw it once. Wasn't convinced. Yeah. So, I have a question. You might know the answer to this. Mm -hmm. I have heard that this movie was originally intended to be sort of like a throwaway B-movie. I think so. I think that's right. Like, it was, I mean, it wasn't intended to be, I mean, it had a, like, an A-list cast, but it wasn't like, they weren't like, oh, we're gonna create this you know, soaring epic. It just sort of worked out that way because of the marketing and the you know the timing of it with the Casablanca conference. Yeah, that's amazing. And then that became one of the best movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you rate this movie, Hill? Okay, so we agreed that All About Eve was a five, right? Like mm-hmm. both said that it was yes. a five. So I think, is it as good a movie as All About Eve? Or is it just below? I think it might be just below, just because there are some backstories that we don't know that aren't fleshed out as much. So I'm going to give it a 4.75. What about you? Yeah, I <laughs> I agree with your reasoning that I, I don't think it's a 5, just because we've sort of established the standard mm-hmm. for that. Um, I do really like the movie. There's a couple things that left me like slightly less satisfied, but... I think everyone agrees that this is a movie that is enjoyable to watch. It's enjoyable to rewatch. Mm-hmm. It's beautifully written. I would give it 
I think I'm going to give it a 4.5. Well, that's fine. So, I'm like right there with you. I know. <laughs> but, yeah, I I really enjoyed rewatching it this time. You know, I feel like it's, it is one of those movies that you get something different out of it every time you watch it. Yeah. Um, wait, so what's our next movie? The General. <laughs> the General. Okay, cool. Switching gears. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all... Tomorrow is another day.